Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 47, uh, Part 2 of Walls and Ceilings. And this will be, uh, this will be the end of this particular um, genre, Walls and Ceilings. Just a two-parter. Early attempts to imitate plaster ornamentation on ceilings and walls led to the use of paper mache, which was composed of cellulose, for example, even back in the day, recycled paper, and glue pressed into molds and sealed in linseed oil. Papier-mâché architectural ornaments first appeared in the 17th century and were manufactured throughout England, France, and Germany. Papier-mâché was used extensively in the 18th century. Papier-mâché ornaments were imported to the United States in the 18th century. A prominent example of the ornamentation is the Miles Bruton House, built in 1760 in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1877, Frederick Walton invented the first embossed wall and ceiling coverings of the Victorian era in the United States. Having previously invented linoleum, Walton had been seeking a compatible product for use on ceilings and walls that could imitate the three-dimensional details of plaster, tool leather, or even wood, but at considerably less expensive price. He named the product Lincrusta Walden. The manufacturing process was similar to that of linoleum, except that instead of ground cork dust, Lincrusta Walden used wood pulp and paraffin wax as filler to create sheets within the three-dimensional forms and patterns. Intended for walls and ceilings, a waterproof paper replaced the original canvas-based construction to make Lacrusta Walden more flexible. Lacrusta Walden was mounted to walls and ceilings using a glue-paste mixture applied to the back of the material. This covering was popular for its ease of hanging, durability, and washability. Lacrusta Walden eventually was used in the houses and buildings of the middle and upper classes to imitate carved plaster or wood, embossed leather, metal, ceramic tile, or oak dado. The surface could be decoratively painted to simulate wood, marble, or other expensive materials. A number of domestic and foreign products introduced later in the 19th century completed with and competed heavily with Lincrusta Walden in the embossed wall and ceiling covering market. This included Angathpa, Tin Castle, Tapestry, Japanese Paper, Camoid, Circumbrium, Calcicon, Corticone, Lingor, and Santander. The most successful was the Anglapata, which was patented by Thomas J. Palmer in 1886. Unlike to Walden, it was a paper-based covering that was pressed between two rollers to impart a hollow relief pattern to the material itself. The hollowness of the paper made this lighter than the Lincrusta Walden. It could be decoratively painted with glazes, paint, and gilding in the same fashion as Lincrusta Walden. Due to the varied manufacturing processes, these products present unique challenges in their presentation and repair. For instance, water-based materials such as Angusta are vulnerable to the same decay mechanisms as wood, while 
than Lincrusta walden, but has characteristics similar to linoleum. Therefore, any treatments of restoration or conservation for embossed or preformed wall ceiling coverings should be performed under the direction of an experienced conservator. Metal ceilings first appeared in the 1870s as corrugated metal panels used for structural fire protection. Henry Alder patented the first steel ceiling in 1780 or 1874, and Albert Northrup patented the first commercially viable metal ceiling system in 1884. Commonly referred to as tin ceilings, these systems were actually made from stamped or rolled sheets of steel. They became widely popular in the early 19th century as a replacement for decorative plaster. The system was also adapted for use on walls. Metal ceilings can be identified by the uniform, regular repetition of the decorative elements on them. In some instances, smaller panels were assembled into combinations that formed a larger pattern. Each section was separately attached to a furring strip or nailed to the building framing. Some metal ceilings were flat panels that were originally installed with a decoratively painted surface applied by the manufacturer that remains exposed to view to this day. Unfortunately, most original ceilings were later painted and now exist under multiple coats of paint and build up layers of dirt and grime. Decay and remediation strategies are similar to those for metals described earlier in, the, in this uh, podcast. For metal ceilings and wall panels in particular, the two most common problems are corrosion due to moisture and damage caused by later remodeling. These ceilings and panels are very vulnerable to punctures created with modern lighting, communication, and fire safety systems when they are mounted. Many metal ceilings were damaged when fasteners used to suspend lowered ceilings were installed and when larger spaces were divided into smaller ones. Careful assessment must be made to determine whether sufficient replacement sections are available. If replacement sections cannot be relocated for less public portions of a building or obtained from a salvage company, a custom-cast fiber-reinforced plastic replacement can be made from a mold from a sample panel. In 1895, Wallace Clement Sabine, a professor at Harvard University, identified reverberation, which is an echo, as a primary cause of acoustical problems at the Fogg Museum at Harvard University. His research formed the basis for modern acoustical theory of enclosed spaces that led to his 1911 collaboration with the noted architect Raphael Gustado. Together, they developed their Rumsford tile, which became known as the first acoustical tile. Sabine and Gustasano later developed a second tile, also known as the Pounds, Rachel, and Weaver. These tiles were used initially as part of a proprietary system. They were composed of clay and organic compounds and were fired in a kiln and burned off the organic materials to create a porous tile that could be applied to a finished surface. Sound waves entered the holes in the surface and were trapped in the tile. So then came the 1920s 
we saw numerous materials introduced to control reverberation in spaces. <coughs> These materials included felt and membrane systems, various board and panel systems, and acoustical plaster. Gypsum plaster, mineral wool, wood fiber, Portland cement, cork, flax, sugarcane, and perforated metal were used by various manufacturers. Many of these products also contain asbestos to enhance the strength and fireproofing characteristics. Early acoustical materials were limited to natural <coughs> colors, but processes were developed that allow use of certain water-based paints and tints in their manufacture later on. However, simply painting the coarse surface of the acoustical tile reduced or eliminated its sound-absorbing qualities. Eventually, felt and membrane systems were discontinued, and after World War II, acoustical plaster or tile became the preferred applications. Originally developed in the 1920s, acoustical plaster that included organic fibers to acoustically soften the surface and enhance sound absorption was applied by hand. After World War II, pneumatic application processes became available. Acoustical tile is perhaps the most commonly visible acoustic treatment in buildings today. Derived from the various board and panel systems of the early 1920s, these products were typically glued to the ceiling or walls. In 1929, the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building featured the first suspended acoustical ceiling. The suspension system was concealed using splines to attach the cast gypsum panels to the suspension system. Use of concealed suspension systems continues to this day. The now familiar exposed aluminum T suspension system became widely popular in the 1950s and still remains that way today. <clears throat> Acoustical tiles for panels were vulnerable to the decay mechanisms that affected their constituent materials. They could be damaged by rough incidental contact or rough handling. In addition, they were prone to soiling from atmospheric pollutants or staining from water contact due to leaking pipes or building envelope failure. While typically, typically not cleaned, they were sometimes painted to cover the soiling. When this was done, the fissures and holes that trapped sound may have become filled with paint and therefore were less sound absorbent. Only products that use standardized perforations could be painted so long as the perforations remained open. If the material became waterlogged, the tiles or panels could detach from the substrate and cause its suspension system to collapse totally. Plastic laminates have been in use as decorative finishes for walls, doors, countertops, and even casework. The first laminates were patented by Leo Blacken in 1909 and consisted of fibrous sheets saturated with a phenomenal formaldehyde resin. In 1913, Daniel O'Connor and Herbert Faber, while developing a substitute electrical insulator for mica, instead invented a plastic laminate sheet that became known as formica. Originally, the dark color of the resins limited the material to use as black or dark brown. However, the application of opaque laminate coverings made by Formica in 1927, lighter colors and lithographed wood grains could be 
used as the exposed surface layer. Throughout the next three decades, a variety of resin, polymer, or polymer-based laminates were introduced and and gained quite wide acceptance by the late 1930s. By the 1950s, plastic laminates were being used in movie theaters, stores, diners, and kitchens, where a colorful, decorative, durable, and easily maintained surface was desired. Plastic laminates could be installed using casein or resin glues or bonding cements. In some exterior locations, they were screwed in place. Despite their seemingly durable nature, plastic laminates do and did deteriorate. They did not react well to the extremes of temperature and humidity and were highly vulnerable to staining from food and food preparation. Heat and moisture caused plastic laminates to change in dimension, blister, delaminate, and even crack. Plastic laminates became brittle when they cooled or dried out. Moisture penetration cut along the edges was especially troublesome. Sunlight and ultraviolet light caused surfaces to yellow. The adhesive bond between the laminate and the substrate could fail due to improper installation methods. Although plastic laminates were usually resistant to chemicals, they had been known to react with hydrochloric acids and lye, sodium hydroxide, sulfuric acid, hydrogen peroxide, and even acetone. To extend the life of plastic laminates, care should be taken to limit control control exposure to light and extreme temperature and humidity fluctuations. The surface should be cleaned periodically with a non-abrasive, non-ionic detergent and dried immediately. Although repair products from scratches and small surface defects are available, large infill and patching repairs are only nominally acceptable because they're already they're always seen. You can never hide these things. <clears throat> when deterioration is more pronounced, replacement of an entire panel may be necessary. However, panels with matching patterns or colors may no longer be made or the original remaining panels may have changed in color. Due to the specialized and often fragile nature of the decorative materials used on or as the outermost layer of the wall, investigation of a condition generally requires consultation with a conservator who specializes in the specific material. Such consultation is particularly important when one or more layers of the decorative finish have historic significance. That may be lost as the result of a specific planned treatment. For example, a wall covering from a later period may have to be removed to, to restore a room to the earlier period, or when investigations of a substance <clears throat> of the, of the sub, subsurface proportions of the wall warrant removal of the overlaying layers to verify conditions. As the flooring described in the previous episode, a broad range of colors and surface treatments, as well as the underlying construction of the wall or ceiling itself, have produced a variety of possible problems. Beyond the short-term losses, though, fire, vandalism, and natural disasters, and long-term losses from periodic update, these problems include damage caused by moisture, soiling, and abrasion, mechanical failure, and material loss. Beyond the decay that it causes in the supporting structural system, moisture is a common cause of decay in walls and ceilings. 
Sources of moisture include deteriorated roof and exterior wall construction, leaking pipes, condensation, leaking windows, and poor maintenance practices. Materials that have been treated with protective coatings may withstand nominal exposure to moisture when properly cleaned. But when the exposure becomes prolonged or occurs where the water can penetrate into the material, the moisture can initiate decay mechanisms corresponding to that material, for example, wood, stone, masonry, and or metal, affected. Water may also discolor and stain the material with oxidized minerals that were captured as the moisture migrated through the assembly from the original point of entry. Additionally, various glues and binders react to the moisture and lose their strength, such as wheat-based glues used on wallpapers. Walls and sometimes ceilings are susceptible to scrapes and damage caused by incidental contact. The use of picture rails in the Victorian area was an attempt to eliminate damage caused by hanging pictures on the wall. Pets can scratch and chew on finishes within their reach. Finishes can become cloudy or damaged by improper cleaning solutions or infrequent replacement of soiled water when causing the cleaning of the surfaces. Smoke and soot from fireplaces and candles accumulate on any exposed surface, including walls and ceilings. Soiling also occurs as smoke and vapors from cooking appliances come into contact with the wall and ceiling. Tobacco smoke will deposit a brownish nicotine residue that will noticeably accumulate over time. Seasonal variations in temperature can cause materials to expand and contract. If they're water permeable, they will also swell and shrink. In dry conditions, many wall and ceiling materials can become very brittle. In human conditions, they or their adhesives may lose strength or fail. As, the, as a building settles and shifts due to changes in structural equilibrium or failure of support or support components, wall and ceiling materials may withstand the forces exerted to some extent. However, when these forces far exceed the strength of the substrate and structure, walls and ceilings begin to fall apart. This mechanical failure may be the first to be subtle, especially when concealed by a protective or ornamental covering, such as Lincrusta Walden, paneling or simple layers of paper, and even simple updated layers of plaster. This failure can remain undetected until bulges in the finished material are noticed or the surface cracks or breaks apart. As the buildings settle, Doors and windows may also begin to stick while being opened or closed. Walls and ceilings can also deteriorate gradually from breakage, surface wear, or decay due to poor maintenance issues. This decay is particularly true for materials and the adhesives that originally secured them that have become brittle with age or compromised by moisture. In some instances, surface moisture acts directly on the finish, in others, the substrate upon which the finisher covering has been placed reacts to moisture within the wall and gradually begins to fail over the long term. This failure causes the overlying ornamental finish or covering to shift and become quite uneven, accelerating material loss through a combination of abrasion and mechanical failures. 
Sudden extensive loss can also occur as a byproduct of water damage from a burst pipe <coughs> or water used to fight a fire elsewhere in the building. Insensitive remodeling or accidental or intentional damage by occupants can also cause damage in the surface of finishes. Removing or installing wall or ceiling mounted fixtures, such as attach, fi- attaching fixtures or removing a portion of the wall or ceiling to install wiring, may damage the wall as well as the ceiling. Damage can also occur when coverings are removed to update a space to reflect current aesthetic taste. Over time, even with appropriate care, whether through abrasion or mechanical failure, finished surfaces may wear down, break apart, or become dislodged. This can lead to removal of the remnants of the worn-out elements or failing pieces. (coughs) Left unchecked, this decay can result in material losses that detract from the overall appearance of the interior of the building. The treatments described here are just a mere over, overview of the materials described in the episode. Further information is given in other episodes for tile, millwork, plaster, and decorative coatings. Once the problem source has been identified and the damaged portions have been protected from additional decay, the methods for treating the problems can be evaluated. One treatment consists of preserving the materials by conserving the existing proportions and minimalizing minimalizing the adverse effect of any contemplated repairs. When damage is extensive, replacement of the damaged portions may be required. When the removal of damaged material becomes necessary, compatible infill and replacement materials should be used. Since asbestos was a common component in many of the wall and ceiling treatments, and their adhesives, testing to verify its presence should be completed before disturbing this material. When the project requires the disturbance or removal of multiple layers of wall and ceiling finishes, for example, paint and wallpaper, each layer should be documented, photographs, and measured drawings to retain a record of the historic chronological evidence of the changes of the finishes over time. This process extends the original sampling done at the start of a project to define the construction chronology. Preservation of a wall or ceiling decorative finish may be best accomplished by limiting its exposure to ultraviolet light and reviewing the maintenance practices being used. Changes in hydrothermal conditions, for instance the combination of temperature and humidity, can particularly affect unprotected surfaces. Limiting exposure to light and closely controlling humidity and temperature should prolong the life of the wall and ceiling surfaces below. Before electric lighting was used, light fixtures produced soot from an open flame. Accordingly, decorative papers and other moisture-permeable wall coverings were cleaned periodically using an assortment of putty-type cleaners and erasers. The moderately adhesive nature and nominally abrasive action of the putty pulled the soiling from the surface. Any loose residue remaining on the surface after cleaning was then lightly brushed off. For moisture-resistant surfaces, mild soap and water were used on the surface or was simply covered with a new finished treatment altogether. 
For example, new paint or wallpaper. So to preserve the surface of decorative ornamental features, aggressive cleaning to harsh chemicals must be avoided. Careful verification of modern cleaning products and their compatibility with the surfaces being cleaned is necessary to ensure long-term retention of the historic fabric. As the historic significance and fragility of the surface being cleaned increases, conservators specializing in the materials question should be consulted. Restoration work on any historic decorative covering or finish should be done only by a specialized conservator. Damage is limited in areas and can often be repaired. The repair materials must be physically and visually compatible with the existing materials adjoining the repair. Since many early installations may not confirm that the standardized thickness of modern materials, repair materials, and installation procedures may need to be adapted to produce an appropriate finished repair. Dimensional thickness of wall and ceiling coverings can vary by manufacturer type of product. Over time, manufacturers develop ways to increase production volumes or reduce costs by changing either the thicknesses of their products or the way they were installed. For example, a gypsum board drywall patch can be installed to a repair hole in a three-phase or three-coat plaster wall system and then the surface can be built up to the desired thickness with joint compound. Regardless of the repair method, the finished surface should match the profile of the existing joining surface. Small individual infill repairs may often be undetectable when properly done. However, when the repairs become too numerous, they eventually reduce the overall visual appearance of the space. The decision to make a multitude of small repairs that may compromise the integrity of the wall or ceiling in question should be weighed against the historic significance of the wall or ceiling altogether. Failing wall and ceiling materials may be temporarily stabilized by securing protections, protective coverings, for example, mesh or grid plastic sheets in place. These temporary protections should be secured in a way that minimizes surface damage but allows their airflow and prevents moisture accumulation. So when retaining portions of the wall or ceiling is dangerous to limiting access to the space, it is not possible in the long run. The entire wall or ceiling covering, its substrate, or both may need to be replaced in order to continue using the space safely. Replacement or missing features must be based on documented evidence and not simply conjecture. Replacement of extensively damaged or irregular wall and ceiling features can be based on the remaining existing frames. When original materials are are damaged beyond repair, similar or compatible materials must be used in their replacement. As noted earlier, in some cases, appropriate replacement materials, for example, wallpaper, may be obtained by having them reproduced by a custom fabricator. So this is Greg Perry. That ends uh, the episode on walls and ceilings. That ends part two. Uh, just remind, if you want to see, have a more visualization of the Historic Preservationist, look us up on uh, the Historic Preservationist on IGTV and also Instagram and on our YouTube channel. 
Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation, is signing out. Thanks for listening.